had a really uncomfortable realization a couple of years ago uh, when we were working through the book of Romans. And it was the reality of my age, the future, and how much Bible there was to preach. And it was this reality, this realization, uh, that I probably would never preach through the book of Romans again. It would just not be the time. Uh, be too burdened to preach through lots of the text of Scripture, and not just one book. And so maybe for the last time, in, in a very long time, to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, Corinthians has been good for us. It's been good for my heart, been good for, I think, the life of our church. Uh, and individually, there's been so many lessons that we've learned. And so we come now to its conclusion, and it's fitting as we come to the end of uh, 2 Corinthians that Paul is going to deal directly with the nature of division in the church, even with these closing comments and commands. You know, when we talk about relational division and uh, relationship uh, severing and and how do we repair relationships and how do we work through it, and, and obviously that's a massive topic and we're not going to be able to cover all of that this morning, but really just work through what Paul's telling the Corinthians, kind of some concluding thoughts and pointing them back to truths that he's told them. I know that when I bring that up, that I'm probing in painful places in hearts. I know that. I know that because, because I've certainly experienced deep relational uh, chasms and schisms and divisions. I remember maybe the first time that I was really challenged with the concept of having a clear conscience and making things right with people. Uh, I was about 16 or 17 years of age and um, had, had really begun on a journey again to serve the Lord and follow Christ. And was deeply convicted over the way I had behaved towards my teachers, in particular when I was in middle school, my eighth grade teachers. And I was, um, I know this is hard to imagine for many of you, but I was just an unholy wretch. Um, I was a horrible person. I got in fights weekly. I carried a knife, carried rolls of quarters in my pockets. I'd use those to hit kids, had a bat in my locker. I wore a jean jacket that was covered in satanic symbols, Nazi symbols, and heavy metal bands. That was my thing. And I had a motto, uh, hit first, ask questions later, no fear. That's, that's who I was. So just wrap your minds around 14-year-old punks, the last kid in the world you want to spend any time with. And so here I am, uh, 17, 18, somewhere in there, convicted, knowing I need to go back. And so I uh, drove my car up to the middle school and went into middle school. And times were different then. Uh, nobody stopped me at the front doors. It was right after school let out. And a little bit of PTSD for me walking back into this middle school that uh, the administration had so politely invited me to depart halfway through my eighth grade year. Um, and I made my way to Mr. Black's classroom. Uh, he was my science teacher. I hated this guy with a passion. And one of the last things I had said to him as an eighth grader leaving is, I'm going to kill you. Um, now, I, I think usually we take threats from 14-year-olds lightly. Um, but I had given enough reason to at least put the question, is this kid insane enough to do that? And I walked back into that classroom fully believing this guy would have no recollection of who I was. I mean, it had been four years, three or four years, who cares? I'm done. And I walked into his classroom. He was talking to another student or teacher there. And when I walked in, he immediately knew who I was. And he said, what are you doing here? And reached to hit the button to call the, the front office to have me escort. He knew who I was. And I remember just having to humble myself and say, please don't, I'm here to ask your forgiveness. And it was, you know, I'd say humbling. It was a humiliating moment. 
And I say humiliating because I think when we come into awareness of the sins we've done against others, that's kind of your first level of repentance. And so you confess that to Christ and you ask his forgiveness. And you know you need to ask someone else's forgiveness because you've done harm to the relationship. But there are, I think there are deepening levels of repentance as the reality of our sin sets in. And his reaction years later told me in that moment uh, there was a depth to my wickedness relationally that I had not even perceived. And that's just humiliating, the effects of our sins and relational division. Now, now here I'm opening with this, and I know this fact, that if you've lived on this earth long enough, everyone in this room has wrestled through relational schism. And in fact, you may be in that circumstance right now. And so I know I'm probing at a tender nerve. I just want you to know I am not immune to that. And I understand experientially the pain of that i I think i understand the pain of that as a brother in christ as as a shepherd um, as a co-journeyer follower of christ and yet in the devastation of relational division i i think it can often feel like there's no real hope Um, honestly if 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 we're going to use cultural events going on right now it can feel like as as hopeless is the Ukraine defending themselves against Russia. How can these wars or these conflicts be settled? And and Paul is writing to what is the most divided church in the New Testament that we have. There there are so many wars and infightings and assaults even in him and division with Paul. And the last time he was physically present with them, they essentially had run him out of the town in tears through this horrendously ugly business meeting where this guy's railing on Paul with false accusations. Nobody defends him. Paul leaves town. That's the last time he was physically present with him. It's hard to believe that there could be any kind of reconciliation in those moments. And I know if you're sitting here and you're actually in the midst of maybe some relational division, I know it's hard for you to have hope. I want to point our hearts this morning to text as Paul finishes with this church that, that should, I think, both call us to action, but then secondarily give us real hope in the power of Christ and what he wants to do. So if you direct your attention down here to the final greetings, that's the subheading that I find in my ESV Bible here, but 2 Corinthians 13. uh, We're just going to do 11 through 14, and we'll be finished with Corinthians. He says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all there's this moment in the old testament of relational reconciliation that seems to defy the odds Uh, and you might remember the story of jacob and esau jacob deceives his father deceives his brother um, and and steals his brother's blessing flees away to a foreign land gets married has lots of kids by two wives two of their servants has all kinds of animals god has blessed him god says you're gonna be the father of my nation israel yes the deceiver jacob god knows how to pick him right well he picked us so yeah he sure knows how to pick them and now jacob decides he's going to return home and he begins to make his way back home and he is rightly terrified of what esau is going to do and as they begin to approach 
uh, Esau or Jacob sends all of these, these servants and animals with all these gifts to Esau. Uh, it, you know, Proverbs talks about a man's gift makes a way for him. And he's trying to just calm the situation. And he's trying to say, um, I'm giving this to you in kind of a position of supplication and, and confessional repentance a little bit. I know I've wronged you. I owe this to you. I owe this to you. I owe this to you but still doesn't know how Esau's going to respond. And, and in fact, he finds out that Esau's coming, he's got 400 men with him. Uh, 400 men was a sizable fighting force in this day, and so Jacob has every reason to believe Esau's going to come and kill him. He's got the motives, and he's got the manpower to do great damage to Jacob and all of his family. And so he, he has this night, and Jacob spends all night, and this is the night he wrestles with God all night long and at the end of the night um god jesus is pre-incarnate christ appearing as the angel of the lord release me let me go uh jacob says give me a blessing uh he'd asked for a blessing before and the blessing he got he stole it and so god blesses jacob by putting his hip out of joint this is the night before he's going to meet esau and really what is happening in this moment is actually a wonderful picture of salvation because Jacob is coming into full awareness of how wicked he is and how ultimately weak he is. And you and I, when we journey through this life, when we come to the position of understanding that God says all of us have sinned, but it starts to sink down what our sin is and what that means about us and, and that there's none righteous, not one of us. The fact the wages of our sin is death and we're going to be punished by God by his wrath, rightly deserved for our sin. We're going to spend eternity in hell. And he just, he weakens us and we are crushed under the weight of our sin. And then grace comes, but grace comes and thereby in our salvation, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ, you know what you and I do as Christians? We live the whole rest of our lives knowing how weak we are, don't we? We're not ushered into a position of great strength, but Paul's been preaching all along. It's through our weakness that Christ is made strong. And so now Jacob is weak. He's got no more army. He's got no more lies. And now he's even physically weakened. How could he even defend himself? So the next day he sets out his whole family and he starts with the, the maidservant of his, one of his wives that he loves the least. And it's so clear he, the way he structures it. Jacob's still a mess. Um, don't judge him too harshly. So are you. Uh, and so he's got this and it ends with his favorite wife and her son. And Jacob goes to the front of them, and he's done this so that if Esau is bent on killing him, hopefully to provide enough of a delay for them to flee. And Jacob is walking toward his brother. We know he's, he's walking. He's gotten off his camel because the Bible talks about him bowing down. Can you imagine how painful it is now with a hip that's just been put out of socket for him to be slowly lowering himself to the floor of the desert, the wilderness, bowing seven times down. And then we hit this verse. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. It is just an astounding moment of reconciliation. Now, it's interesting because all the language there points to Esau's actions. It really demonstrates the power that the wronged person in a relationship has to help bring about reconciliation. Esau runs, Esau embraces, Esau falls on his neck, Esau kisses the deceptive, lying, thieving brother. And then this is what fully opens the floodgates 
and they weep together. We've come to the end of a long journey in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Second of at least four letters that Paul wrote to them. One was a tear-filled and painful letter we don't even have. There's a painful visit Paul talks about. For us, 120 sermons through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And now we're ready to finish this trip with this troubled church that Paul is calling to reconciliation. Can the Corinthians, the question would really be this, can the Corinthians, and for that matter us, be like Jacob and Esau, either in doing relationships in a proactive way that that prevents relational division, or in learning how to reconcile divided relationships? Our last study in Corinthians drives home this point. Restored relationships provide a beautiful and powerful image of redemption. That truth seated home so profoundly to me 30 years ago when Mr. Black looked at me and he said, why on earth would you ever walk back in here and ask my forgiveness? And I had two words, one name, Jesus Christ. And I was able to share the gospel with this atheist science teacher. Restored relationships provide a beautiful and powerful image of redemption. Let me just give you the breakdown of the text so you can see it. There will be five commands in verse 11. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And kind of an encouragement to us, the God of love and peace will be with you. There are then signs of restored relationship. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the saints greet you. It's not just that they're internally divided, they're now set apart, and they're divided from Paul and lots of the other believers, both the Jerusalem believers, whom they've stopped raising an offering for, and the Macedonians, who they're jealous of and a little mad at because out of their poverty they've been raising an offering, and then these other churches that Paul has spent time with but hasn't come to them. And so you have signs of restored relationship, and then you have the power. Where does the power even come from to do this? Because if we're frankly honest with one another there's a lots of things in this world that are far easier to do than to restore broken relationships honestly i think restoring a broken relationship would be is as difficult as raising the dead i do because i think when you're in the midst of broken relationships you quickly realize you need jesus doing a work in you but you need him doing a work in the other person and that's why part of the reason it feels so helpless because it feels like you're up against a power that you can't control if you owe somebody money and you, you can't seem to afford it, you can go get more jobs, go get a side job, spend less, and eventually raise the money. But to, but to restore a broken relationship with someone, you can't move their heart to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. You can't move upon them to be willing, to be vulnerable. You don't know how to do it. Where in the world can the power come from? It feels like you're being called to de- raise the dead. Well, praise God, we serve the one who raises the dead. And so the power, the power to restore relationships is for, sourced in verse 14, and he's really then calling them to be an empowered church. So we're going to walk through it just in those same three kind of sections. We're going to walk through the commands, we're going to walk through the signs, and then we'll walk through the empowering at the end. And we can actually break down the verse 11 into two parts, even those five commands, vertical relationship and then horizontal relationship. When we're talking about vertical relationship, we're obviously talking about our relationship with God. Clearly, Um, the root of all sinful horizontal relationships, you are going to find some brokenness here before it ever happens here. We're lying to ourselves if we think that that here is the only problem and that there's nothing there. That's a lie. 
We've got to take care of what's going on here in our hearts before God before we can ever take care of what's going on in our hearts with other people. Uh, and so he's going to deal with that So towards God, but also vertically it was with Paul. There was a real brokenness with Paul. Paul's an apostle. He came, he planted the church, spent 18 months with them, had led the church, fed the church, made multiple visits, written, as we said, at least four letters, and they were still divided against Paul, still questioning Paul. Paul was the one that God had put into their lives to teach them truth, to lead them, to establish them, to help mature them, and they're resistant to this. So there needs to be some healing, yes, between them and God, but also between them and Paul before there can ever be a healing between the dear brothers and sisters sitting in the same congregation together and so we can split it vertical and then horizontal first three commands are going to center on this vertical kind of relationship first one that we see is rejoice he says this finally brothers rejoice now (laughs) how in the world do you rejoice with all the problems they've got going on and particularly particularly in the midst of relational conflict well paul's goal for the corinthians has never been their sorrow but for their joy uh, when you confront someone rightly uh, and you can see this in peers you can see it in parenting you can see it in christians just doing life together when you go and you're walking in the spirit and you bring to bear someone's sin what's going on in their life hey brother sister uh, son daughter whatever friend i want to talk to you about something that's going on in your life i want to talk to you about sin Your goal when you're walking rightly is not their misery. Your goal is not to get your your pound of flesh from them. Your goal must be ultimately for restoration with them and God and with you if there's a division there. And, And really we can boil that down to one word, joy, right? Sin is at the cause of so much misery, hurt, and harm in this world. Sin is the root of misery. Sorrow like dark valleys, is part of the journey of a sinful life. But it is never intended to be the destination. Greener pastures is where God is calling us ultimately to live and to be led to. He is with us through the journey of the dark valleys. His rod and his staff, uh, one was to beat away the enemy, and the other one was to keep you right next to him. Because how prone we are in the midst of dark valleys to wander. You know, David, interestingly, says, before I was afflicted, my heart went astray. And so sorrows of this world are intended to draw us closer to the side of the Savior. But I think if we're all honest in here, we're all weak enough in our faith in seasons that in dark valleys, we have found a proneness to drift. A wandering. And, and so we go through dark valleys, maybe even of relational conflict, specifically here with our context this morning. But it could be all kinds of things. It could be financial hardship. It can be physical health hardship. It could be economic. It could be employment. It could be worried about the the things going on in our world. And Paul understood when he's confronting the the Corinthians, 10 different issues in 1 Corinthians, coming back to lots of them here in 2 Corinthians, his goal is not their sorrow. And and in, in fact, it should remind us as Paul is commanding them to rejoice. This is a command. Rejoice, give praise to God. It should remind us of the truth of Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He put it to them this way at the start of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 23 down through verse 4 of chapter 2. He said this, I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. 
for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul knew that the sins between the Corinthians and each other, the sins between the Corinthians and himself, has caused this deep relational chasm. There's nothing quite like relational strain and the pain it brings into our lives. We feel like we're in bondage to the hurt. We feel betrayed, unloved, alone, crazy at times. And the very last thing any of us want is to be hurt more. Paul knows, though, this truth. You do not get to the greener pastures without walking through the darker valleys. You don't get to the morning of joy by trying to ignore the night of tears. You don't get to the crown without the cross. And Paul does a very brave thing here. He does a very loving thing here. He does a very tender thing here. He pursues as much as he can to be reconciled with them. Paul understood that at the end of the day, reconciliation is a two-part deal. But Paul is committed to do all that he can on his end for reconciliation. How can the Corinthians then rejoice with all this division? (laughs) How, How do you praise God and rejoice in the midst of all this sorrowing? Well, well, the theme of Paul's responses to the Corinthians all along from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians has been to borrow this key phrase that Darren read to us this morning before uh, we took our offering and he prayed. And it was this, to boast in the Lord. We could actually phrase it this way, let your rejoicing be in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 10, 17, he had said it again, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The object of their boast must stop being on their gifts their wealth, their liberty, their leaders, or their own ministry, but it must be a focus on the power and person of Christ. Let me break it down to you this way. How in the world is Joseph, when he is at such deep uh, strain with his brothers who beat him up, most of them wanted to murder him, sold him into slavery, now they need him. How in the world is Joseph able to ever forgive them? Because Joseph's eyes are no longer on himself or them, they're on the Lord. How do we know that? Because what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? I know we're a big middle-class white church. Help a brother out. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for thank you. Where's his eyes? They're on Christ. Now, ultimately, God, right? How are you able to work through relational division in a way that rejoices? Because you stop putting it all about you. One of the most difficult things to do when you've been hurt is to stop focusing on all the hurt that's been done to you. One of the most profoundly difficult things to do when you've hurt someone else is to take the eyes off all the justification that you've mounted in your brain and the internal court case that you have waged to defend your right to do the hurt. Well, I was just trying to show them how much they've hurt me. You see, they walk through this world in a narcissistic, self-absorbed way, and they don't realize all the many ways they've hurt me. So you know what? It's actually good that they're experiencing some hurt now. 
That'll show them. I bet no one in this room has ever done that. I don't like what you said. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. We are selfish, manipulative people because hurt people hurt people. And so when we have this command to rejoice, it immediately confronts us. Rejoicing even can come during relational strain when we set our eyes not on what has been done to us, listen to me now, but what on the Lord has done for us. Not on what we have done that fills us with such shame and we feel it's too far gone to make right, but on the forgiveness the Lord even grants us in our repentance. Jacob's eyes were no longer on himself, but a night of wrestling with God had given him a new perspective of dependence instead of deception. His trust was in one greater than himself. Do you feel weak in your relational struggles? Do you feel like, how could I do that? Do you feel like, how could I ever say these words? Do you feel like, how could I make that phone call? How could I send that email? How could I send that text? How in the world could I sit down with this person? You, you like feel like, I'm so weak, Steve. Like, I don't know how I do that. You don't know how deeply I've been hurt, and, and I can't open myself up to more hurt. You feel vulnerable. You feel powerless, and you feel like you lack the wisdom to know what to do, and you feel like you lack the strength to know what to do. Well, hasn't Paul taught us that it's good when we're weak and foolish? Because then it's Christ's strength and Christ's wisdom and not ours. I think that's exactly what he's taught them, isn't it? And you know what? In that moment, you rejoice. You rejoice because you say, wow, this is so painful. This is so hard. I feel so weak. I feel so unwise. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to turn. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think I've read somewhere. I think I've read somewhere that when I'm weak, he's strong. So I know this by faith, and I'm going to praise God for this by faith because it doesn't feel this way, but I'm not going to be ruled by my feelings. I'm going to preach to my heart, not listen to my heart, and I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight, and I'm going to praise God because when I'm powerless, he's powerful. When I'm foolish, he's wise, and so he's on mission in this moment to do something I cannot even imagine. Paul says rejoice. He moves for that, though. He says aim for restoration. Our ESV translates it, aim for restoration. The NASB New American Standard translates it as be made complete. The King James says be perfect. What in the world are these different translations trying to get at? They're trying to get at an idea that the, the, the Greek is communicating here, and it means be prepared. Let me put it to you this way. Let me picture it maybe for you this way. Think of the church and its relationships, because that's primarily where Paul is centering his context, and we really would first apply this. I think it can be applied beyond the church, obviously, but, it, but its first application must be right here uh, in the community, a localized community of believers or believer to believer, um, while there's broader application. And so the, think of it this way. Think of it as a beautiful tapestry. I don't know. How many of you have ever been to the Biltmore, right? I remember my wife saying, let's go to the Biltmore. I'm like, what's the Biltmore? It's this massive house that you get to tour and see all of its decorations. I like to shoot guns and drive cars fast. Like, that's like, like HGTV is a form of torture, right? I'm like, okay, it's amazing. I, was, I didn't know what I was talking about. It's so cool. Like, you go in, and it's, and it's all this, and you can't even imagine somebody living this way. And it's just beautiful, but they have these massive tapestries. And tapestries always tell a story. Tapestries are a form of art, and it's woven art, and it's just, it actually just blows my mind. 
how someone could have the skill. And because it's not just weaving skill to be able to do this, but it's an artistic eye to it. And you make this beautiful tapestry. And, and there's so many great illustrations you can use for a sermon, right? There's everything that's beautiful on the front side, you turn the tapestry around, just like, like a knotted mess. That's what our lives are like. We, we walk through life as the backside of the tapestry on our journey to heaven when God will finally show us the front side. It's glorious. But think of the church as a beautiful tapestry. And Paul actually used the same imagery in 1 Corinthians. Um, and think of it as a beautiful tapestry. But what's happened in Corinth is, is moths have gotten to it and they've, they've eaten into it. And somebody else came in and they stuck a knife in it and, and they've made holes in it. And it's kind of shredded. And the edges that have this, this hard stitching to try to hold it together has become undone. And so it's beginning to fray. And it's like when you have that loose thread on a, on a shirt or sweater and you pull it and, like, and everything goes apart. And so this is the tapestry, and the language is actually saying, begin to mend it. And so that's why the King James translated it as be perfect. In other words, be whole, that's what's been made undone. That's why the NASB translates it as be made complete. That which is incomplete should be made complete. And that's why the ESV is going after the relational component for it when it says be restored because it understands it's not an object, it's people. The church is not a building, it's not a time you meet, it's not a dress code you adhere to. It's not even a song list you, cho- you choose or programs you run. The church is people. We teach even little children this and we make them make a little sign with their hands, right? And Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's the people. We understand this. And so the ESV is going after this idea. Aim for restoration. Be prepared would be another way to think about it. Mend that which is broken. Be prepared in what way? Well, the Corinthians, it's going to showcase through repentance. So Paul's told them, be prepared to give the offering you said you were going to do, but then you stopped doing Paul had told them, raise some money for the Jerusalem believers because they're being persecuted. Corinthians said, great idea, we're going to raise a lot of money. We're a wealthy, wealthy church, wealthy city. We got you. Uh, they get mad at Paul. Why should we raise money for the Jerusalem believers? I bet Paul's just skimming off the top. We can't trust him. Let's not raise money anymore. Paul confronts them. He sends messengers to confront them, sends letters to confront them. And so Paul's now told them, be prepared when I get there to have the offering ready. The practical outworking of the offering was going to be a a visible image of the internal restoration of a heart attitude. Do you see that? It says, be prepared. And so he told them, be prepared by this offering. He tells them, be prepared with humble brokenness before I get there so that I don't have to use my authority as an apostle. Be prepared how? Be prepared to discipline people out of the church that are unrepentant of their sin and be prepared to receive back into the church people who have repented over their sin. Be prepared to deal with your sexuality and sensuality and, and, and your division in the church. Be prepared. Be prepared by aiming for restoration first with God, then with Paul, then with each other. We will never be fully right with others until we have first made things right with God. All our sin is ultimately against God, and unless He forgives us, the forgiveness of others is but a pale shadow of what we really need. The humility that comes from first meeting with God about wrongs done by us or done to us is a critical step to mending torn relationships. Gary Ridgway, known as the Green River Killer, they don't even know how many women he killed, over 40. 
stood it as his sentencing and people, vict- families were able to make victim impact statements. He stood there, solemn face, cold, looking like the sociopathic madman that everyone believed he was. Subpar intelligence. Um, just, a, just a terrible, terrible person. And a father of one of the murdered girls stood up and looks over at Gary Ridgway, who had refused to look at any of the victims or their families and begins to say, I follow Jesus, I forgive you, Gary. And like a faucet, the man broke and just started weeping. It is an unbelievable image of the grace of God for someone to offer forgiveness that way. Now, that dad can offer that forgiveness. But we know this about Gary Ridgway. That forgiveness will mean ultimately nothing in eternity if he does not repent of his sin before God, right? We know this, right? So, and I want to just be careful here, but clear. I'm no better than Gary Ridgway. And neither are you. Oh, but I haven't done this, that, or the other. And that's the exact kind of stinking thinking that messes with our relationships with one another. What I've done is not that bad. They're like 95% at fault. And the reality is before there can ever be right relational reconciliation, there must be repentance before God for the things that we have done. There must be a humbling before God in owning of who we are and what we have done a right preparation. Listen, you can't walk into a conversation of reconciliation horizontally if you have not already been having conversations of reconciliation vertically. Paul says, be prepared. Walk into this meeting, walk into my arrival with you, having already been doing business with God. It's the prodigal son. The prodigal son is in the pig pen He's, he's, he's slopping the pigs. He's so hungry, he wants to eat what they're eating. He's covered in pig filth, and it, the Bible says he comes to his senses, as Jesus tells this parable, and he realizes who he is and what he's done. And the humility and repentance is written all over the story because what's his response? His response is no longer one of entitled expectation from his dad. He started saying, give me my inheritance. When he comes to a point of broken repentance and he realizes his sin before God, his perspective of his father is this now. I don't have a right to be his son, but even his servants are treated better than this. I'd rather have the grace of my dad as a servant than demand anything as a son. That's someone that's been humbled about who they are and what they've done. And that's when he goes back to begin to make things right. The humility that comes from first meeting with God about wrongs done by us or wrongs done to us is a critical step in mending torn relationships. Where have we been selfish despite God's generosity? Where have we been proud despite His glory? Where have we sinned despite His holiness? Aim for, plan for, prepare for restoration by first being restored to God. Thirdly, third command toward these vertical relationships, comfort one another. 
There are two ways to take this phrase. I just want to be honest with you. One is to link this all the way back to 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells them to comfort others with the same comfort you have received. And Paul's envisioning in chapter 1 of Corinthians would be as they do ministry God's way, they're going to start to experience some persecution. They're going to start to suffer. In in, In the midst of your suffering, as a believer, you will experience the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the walk beside one. That's what that language means here. That Jesus said, it's actually better I go and I send the Spirit to you. That's just mind-blowing, right? I think, I think because most of us, if you were to ask, would you, if you're just given the choice, would you rather have Jesus Christ in the flesh, front row, frankly, let's be honest, preaching instead of this guy, or would you rather have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? And I think in our flesh and our weakness, most of us, I don't want to lay accusation at you, so we'll just own it up here. I would have tended to say, Jesus, let me hear Jesus preach instead of me preach. And somehow Jesus says to the disciples, it's better I go and send the Spirit to you. Somehow, in God's mystical power and glory, it is better for us to have the abiding and dwelling, comforting, encouraging presence of the Holy Spirit in us, working out of us, than to even have the visible external presence of Jesus Christ, whom we know is with us in this omnipresence anyway, to guard true theology here. And so some come to this and they say that's what it means. The problem is, I don't think it matches the context here, neither does it even match the linguistics. The other way to take this is, toward, is this, heed exhortations. In other words, listen to what you've been rebuked about. That, that's modern day English, right? Um, we put it in another modern day language. Um, whatever I've put you on blast about, start dealing with. Quit being a hearer only but be a doer of the word. There's so many exhortations Paul has given them just in 2 Corinthians. Let me just grocery list these for you in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he had exhorted them. He says, I exhort you, take back the repentance center in love. Someone who has repented, they've been disciplined, they've been disciplined out of the church, excuse me, for their unrepentance. Now they've repented. He says, bring them back in love. Why do we have to be commanded to do that? That seems like that should be pretty simple as Christians. Uh, somebody sinned in a horrific way they were unrepentant we had to put them out of the church church discipline now they've repented of their sin they want to be why why have to be commanded to let them back in i mean aren't we supposed to be the people that love people well think about your life when's the last time someone hurt you very deeply and then they wanted back in you have a hard time letting them back in me too. And so Paul exhorted them to do that. It wasn't just that. He exhorted them to not receive God's grace in vain, chapter 6, verse 1. He exhorted them to break from idolatry in chapter 6 through 7. He exhorted them to receive the messengers that Paul has sent to them in 8.24. He exhorted them to take up the offering that they had committed to for the hurting in chapters 8 through 9. And he exhorted them to be ready for his arrival through repentance and a changed attitude. All of these build... All exhortations build toward the same goal of being right with god and right with each other sin is what's at the core of relational damage here now obedience to god is at the very bedrock of restored relationships it's hard to obey god in relational restoring activity i know this i do not say this as some distant authority do this but as one who struggles with this in his own life 
Because it's hard to obey God when he tells us to confess our faults one to another. That's hard. That's the, you know what's really hard about that? Is that passage isn't even in the context of confessing to someone you've necessarily sinned against. That's just the accountability of a community. In the book of James. So I'm supposed to be honest with you at times about things that I've done, confessing those to you so I might receive from you, goading towards, right, prompting toward doing good works, accountability that I make things right with other, others and living room. Yeah, that's hard to obey. I'm just going to skip that one. I'm just going to go ahead, right, I'll just make it right with Jesus. I don't need to talk to other people about it. Jesus knows. Stop meddling. I'm not, he is. It's hard to obey. It's hard to obey repentance. I think it's easy for us to assume the faults in our relationships are tiny. Sins done can be ignored. I think it's easy in a family setting, in particular, in, a, in, a, in a, the four walls of your home, whether it's in your marriage, your parenting, or your sibling relationships, in all those, let's be honest, whether you even live together anymore, they all carry afterwards. I think it's really easy to have some moment of sin, some moment of gossip, slander, critical spirit, um, accusatory tone, mean thing that you've said or done, selfish way that you've acted, and, and you know it, right? Spirit just oh, immediately, conviction. Oh, I should have said that. Or maybe you laid in bed later and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But it doesn't seem huge. And so you gauge whether or not you need to repent on their response the next day. And if they seem normal enough, then you assuage yourself and you silence the spirit and you say, well, then it must not have been that big of a deal. It's hard to obey, to repent. It's hard to obey, to ask forgiveness. When you ask forgiveness, you're admitting that you're in relational debt to this person. It's hard to obey, to grant forgiveness. It's hard to obey, to guard relationships. Restored relationships provide a beautiful and powerful image of redemption. Now, you know, I just may be preaching this morning and you're not in the midst of any kind of relational conflict, or you're not in the midst of one that you can do anything else about. Maybe you've done all you can to dwell with people, and you've done all you can to walk righteously, and you've owned your sin, you've repented of your sin, you've sought after reconciliation, you can't control the other person. And so you're a little bit lost, like, what do I do? Well, all of these are not just how to fix, they're also how to prevent. This is one of those that, that, that prevention is better almost than the cure. Because you're committed to doing relationships this way. And so vertically we handle them, but then he comes after them horizontally. And this is where we have the other two commands in verse 11. He says what? Agree with one another and live in peace. Now we can tackle these together. Only after we have put our eyes on Christ, rejoicing. Only after we have repented from our sins. Only after we have embarked on obedience are we ready to actually then turn to others that we have hurt or been hurt by in order to be reconciled. This is critical because true reconciliation makes us vulnerable people. It makes us vulnerable either like Esau, is Jacob going to deceive me again? Or vulnerable like Jacob, is Esau going to pour wrath out on us? We can take both of them together because they get at the root of our conflicts. This idea of agreeing with each other and living in peace. To agree with one another is not total unanimity on every issue. Listen, in fact, that could be actually the part of your relational conflict. We all got to be on the same page about this. And it's an 
It's, it's a matter that should not divide your relationships. Churches fight through this all the time. That's why there's so much about liberty issues. And so when he says agree with one another, when you take the totality of Scripture, whether it's First Corinthians or Philippians or, um, or Hebrews, the, the nature of our agreement must be this, on the core issues. When we're talking about believers in this context in the local church, we agree on the gospel. We agree on this core truth that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Well, I deserve wrath, you deserve wrath. God sent Jesus, the perfect son, who lived a perfect life, died a sinless death of his own choosing to make payment for your sin and my sin, and that if I turn from my sin and put my faith in him, he'll forgive me my sin and I now follow him. I am bound to Jesus. He is Lord of my life. We agree on that. Agreement on these core issues that identify who we are. James 4 tells us that the heart of our conflict is competing wicked desires. Uh, the, the word there, we have this modern word of hedonism. Uh, that's a self-bent towards what you delight in and what's going to make you most happy. Well, it comes from this Greek word hedonai, and in James 4, that's the word he uses. From whence come wars and fl- conflicts among you, come they not from this source, what? From wicked ruling desires, hedonai. The source of so much of our conflict is what I want versus what you want. At the core of peace, then, is a willingness to set aside unnecessary personal desires for the sake of unity. This is so hard. You know why? Because we make every stinking molehill a mountain to die on. It's like we get some glory and making from the smallest of issues the biggest of deals. Experientially, I would just tell you this, relationships that you see reconciled years later. So um, pastorally, it's not uncommon over the years to have exposure to families that have broken situations. And, and so then someone will die, and suddenly everybody wants to be reconciled. Not everybody, but it's not uncommon. And this is the phrase I've heard so many times. Why did we divide over that? That was not that big a deal. But you try to tell somebody in the midst of a conflict, it's not that big a deal, it's not a big deal. You just put a target on you too. And so when he says agree with one another, we have to ask then, how do you do that? Well, for Christians, it's because we're all coming under the same authority. The Bible, we're going to let the Bible tell me what's the big deal. And that's what I'm going to be ruled by. There has to be something or someone that supersedes what we personally think or desire. That, can, that has to happen before we can ever then live in peace with one another. And we're both going to strive to it. And so I can actually show this to you from Ephesians 4 quickly. The authority that comes here is we're under the control of Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. You don't hear many gospel pleas that way, right? Um, I don't know about you. I grew up in a context where there's lots of altar calls and called it walking the old sawdust trail i never saw a church with sawdust I even went to camp meetings didn't see it but sawdust trail because they do camp meeting throw down sawdust ever walk down come down come to the altar all this i don't i've never heard a an altar call that was said come be a prisoner of jesus i don't like that uh, you know we want to think about we're princes and we're kings and we're princesses and 
Um, we are uh, joint heirs. And all that's true. I'm not denying that. But when Paul starts going after unity, what he goes after is your rights to your life because prisoners have no rights. We take that from them. Uh, you don't get to choose what you wear. You don't get to choose what you eat. You don't get to choose when you get up, when you go to bed, where you live. You don't get to do whatever you want to do. You're a prisoner. When you become a follower of Jesus, you're a prisoner of Jesus. You lost your rights. Praise God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You know what he says? He's telling us there that lots of times we have problems in the church because we don't act like what we are, prisoners. And that's actually a high calling. It takes intentional effort. When you go to verse 3 in chapter 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I'm going to work overtime towards unity and the bond of peace. I'm going to put in effort there. I'm going to work there. I'm going to strive for that. What can I do to work for that end? It's a result of good teaching. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The concept of building up the body of Christ is not numerical increase, but spiritual maturity increase that is all tied back in to an increasing understanding of unity and peace because it comes with maturity until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is so frankly humiliating because what this tells me is when I'm walking through relational conflict in my life, whether it's with my spouse, my children, my friends, distant family, or neighbors, that it is revealing areas of immaturity in me. Mm. And so instead, when I look at Paul and I see Paul keep coming back to Corinth, keep writing letters, and I'm just astounded by his willingness to go back to people that are kicking him in the teeth, and Paul's chasing after it, what we're seeing is what a mature believer does in the face of rejection. They keep chasing. And it's driven by love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You cannot guarantee every relationship reconciled. You can't. You, can, you must do all that you can. All, but listen to that word. All that you can, but from what power? Because we feel so weak and we feel so powerless and foolish. And so how do we work towards this? Well, we have the God of reconciliation. He says, the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We can almost taste Jacob's fear as he's limping toward Esau with his 400 men behind him. Gently, tenderly, painfully lowering himself to the ground seven times, the Bible says, to bow before his brother. You know, it's interesting in the Masoretic text, it's actually the Old Testament version, the Torah, that even Jesus, they would have used in Jesus' day. In the Masoretic text, ten times this occurs where there's dots put above a word or phrase in the Hebrew. One of them is at this one. And it's above the phrase, he kissed him. And the dots are, are in the Hebrew, what they call uh, a nota bene. Nota bene, kind of a phrase. What it means is take special note. And so the question among Jewish rabbis was, how do we to read this phrase that he kissed him? And what's shocking is three to five hundred years, dating's hard there, the rabbinical literature said that it says take note here because it isn't what it looks like. 
One of them said it would be better translated, get this now, as he bit him on the neck, and so it brought tears. Boy, that's a lot different than a kiss. That's like some Dracula mess. Another one said it was a kiss, but it was not a true kiss. Now, these are not Christians. These are Jewish rabbis. The best we could come is it was like a Judas kiss. Ten times, only ten times in all the Torah. And one of them is here. And here's what the rabbis could not wrap their mind around. Get this now. They could not wrap their mind around that there would be that level of affection for someone who had wounded you so deeply. And they said, take note, this can't be what it looks like. This can't be. I think that that is a powerful demonstration of how hard it is to reconcile painful relationships. Paul says something here that's common and something that's uncommon. He says, he says, God of love and peace. It was very common to say God of peace. Shows up in Romans, Philippians, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. But this is the only place, the, literally the only place in the New Testament that it says, and the God of love be with you. Now we know God is love from 1 John 4. This is the only place in the New Testament that this phrase shows up this way. Why? Because the specific phrasing when it says the God of love and peace, and, and in other, we looked, if we were to have time to look at those five other occasions of God of peace, it always means this. It's the God of peace who empowers you with peace. That's what he's saying here. It's the God of love who empowers you with love. How in the world it feels like trying to raise the dead to reconcile relationships. You know what we need? We need divine power. And that's what Paul says is going to come. That's his promise to them and his hope for them. It's his love in us, but it's also his love spread through us. Paul reinforces it in the next two verses. Greet one another with a holy kiss and all the saints greet you. Let's talk about all the saints greet you. What he's telling them is these guys know who you are. They know your reputation. They know how you quit taking the offering. They know how painful you've treated me. They know how you sinned against me. They know how broken it is. They all greet you. They love you. Have you ever had somebody love you that you've wounded deeply? And you're just shocked about it? Paul's telling them, listen, the God of love and peace is at work, and he's on the move. And so he's telling the saints abroad, they love you. They greet you this way. And so he then commands them, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is hard for people in our day and age. And so, so that phrase shows up quite a few times. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and Peter does it in 1 Peter. And we understand there is a cultural dynamic here. There's nothing sensual about this. There's nothing creeper about this. Nothing weird about this. This is a greeting, an affectionate greeting. The closest we could come would be greet one another with a holy hug. Because it is more than just a handshake here. This is a display of affection. And so many commentators, I think, try to get away from the importance of this by saying that's what it is. But here's my question. Why does he have to command it if it was such a part, normal part of the culture? Would it make any sense to you if I said, hey, on your way out, greet one another with a holy handshake? You're already doing that. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for helping me check off. Make me feel like a better Christian. No, this kind of affection was reserved for family. That's why they have to command it. Why do you have to command Christians to treat each other like family? Because I think that it's easier for us to perceive other believers around us as little different than co-workers and neighbors. 
And these people are most assuredly not. They are your brothers and sisters. They are your co-laborers and your friends. They are soldiers you are landing on the beaches of spiritual Normandy with. They are hearts to be comforted, souls to be touched, and lives to be cherished. Nothing has taught me this more than the last year of my life. And I want you to know it's so hard to ask for a hug. But it is so good to receive one when you are lonely, when you are hurting, and frankly, life stinks. It takes on an even more profound element when you're talking about people that were once at odds now being told to display this kind of affection toward one another. All of this leads to the last verse in Corinthians. It reminds us that these horizontal relationships flow out of hearts that are mended. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, when you know what we deserve? Judgment. And instead we've received grace. Love of God, you know what we deserve? Wrath. But instead we've received love. And fellowship of the Spirit, when all we deserve is aloneness. Because frankly, we're unlovable and hard to deal with. But instead we're brought into community. He's telling us that when we do relationships, restored relationships, they provide a beautiful and a powerful image of what redemption is. Because, I don't know about you, but when my relationships horizontally have been broken, I only want to focus on judgment, wrath, and loneliness. And instead, he has designed it that we might picture grace and love and fellowship. Maybe there's some restoring work that needs to be done, Maybe the prevention is what you need today. But I do know this. The affectionate love of believer to believer is a profound demonstration of the affectionate love we receive from Christ. If then we withhold this kind of affection from each other. Aren't we right to question? Have we really received the affection from Jesus? Because I'm convinced holes set on, hearts set on fire from the love of Christ will be hearts set on fire to love others. Father, thank you for calling us to restore relationships. Lord, these are hard commands, and Lord, you know, you know there is no personal authority here. Father, I ask that you would do a work in us. Lord, whether it's for restoration and the grace that people need this week even to be taking steps that way, or whether it is the grace to to cry out to you as the powerful one, to do move, to move in other people's hearts because we've done all that we can do. Or Father, whether it's the prevention of, of aggressively pursuing affectionate, close, bonded relationships with one another. Lord, whatever that work is, may we not come through First and Second Corinthians and think we're better than that church. But Father, may we be the kind of people who say, do a work so we're not that church and change us from that church. Lord, you loved the church at Corinth, and we know you love this church. We ask that you would do a work that we display the redemptive love of Christ in the way we do relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.